Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Welcome to the penultimate episode of Still Watching Mrs. America. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. Every week on this show, we break down the latest episode of some TV series that we are currently sort of obsessed with, fascinated by. Right now, we are covering the FX on Hulu series Mrs. America. Uh, We are covering this week, episode eight, titled Houston. Next week is the finale, and then we're going on a little hiatus over the summer. So this is this is it, Richard. We are winding down uh, our our time for now, just for now. Um, but we are we're here to talk about this incredible episode, Houston. Uh, we've got a bunch of great interviews this week. Mostly, I am excited because Richard got to talk to Sarah Paulson about this incredible episode, um, and I had a really fun time listening to your chat. I'm just excited to hear someone uh, someone's voice other than my own um, on an interview. So I got really excited listening to your interview, Richard. And then I got to talk to I had the honor of talking to the great Nisi Nash, um, and then we also have a little bit uh, of input from creator Davi Waller about sort of what made her want to create this particular episode, which is something of a tonal standout uh, from the rest of the series. So if you have, yeah, yeah I'm, I was really happy that I got to talk to Sarah about it. Um, partly because I think this is one of my favorite hours of TV that we've covered on this podcast, not just for Mrs. America. Like, I, I think that like, it just stands out as such a well executed piece of acting and filmmaking and writing it just it just feels like it's so good (laughs) really and it feels like i mean i know that you know next week is the finale but this feels like a real culmination of a lot of things this show has thus far been about which is exciting yeah richard i think you messaged me and said something like it's a tour de force um which is like (laughs) a term that i never earnestly use but i did earnestly use it over text uh so so we are going to talk about houston i'm pretty excited to talk about it i just want to hit a couple emails we got real quickly before we get into the meat of this episode um 
we got a lovely, a few lovely long emails, and I won't read all of them. But um, Susan Shirley wrote in uh, this really nice email for us, sort of about her upbringing in the church, in an evangelical church, and sort of an awakening she had, which I think is a good uh, parallel to some of the things uh, we see in this episode. Um, but she she talks about. She had this awakening. She listens to our podcast. She was reluctant to watch this show because, you know, of her own sort of childhood, her upbringing. Um, But she wrote, seeing Blanchett portray Schlafly has been incredibly painful. All the lines coming out of her mouth each week transport me back to a time when I wholeheartedly believed what she was saying, except oddly about a woman's role being a mother and a homemaker. My parents never forced those strict gender guidelines on any of the five of us. In the Jill episode, I started so seriously, I started to seriously consider doing some kind of church-related therapy, watching Lottie Beth Hobbs crush that rose that hit so close to home. Though I don't ever recall knowing her name or Phyllis's name, I was most certainly brainwashed by their beliefs, particularly in regards to the ERA and abortion. I remember being told that I could be drafted if, if it passed and being told by church leaders that the ERA was the worst thing imaginable. My parents... We're never into the mega churches of the 80s, but as conservatives politically, these arguments became part of the soundtrack of my childhood. Which brings me to my point. Hearing Margot Martindale's voice crack when she credited her work on the show to helping embrace her feminist side, I burst into tears and I knew I needed to write and thank you both. Um, thank you for being so kind to her. Some of us come to the realization in different stages of life. I was fortunate enough to be a young woman when I learned that life could be different from what I'd always believed. And she moved to Santa Cruz and then her, her email goes on and it's, it's very lovely. Um, and then, and then she has this one part at the end where she says, I'm not sure what's going to happen to Sarah Paulson's character as she's a composite and not a real person, but I see the dawning realization in her eyes whenever she voices her objection to the direction the movement is going. <clears throat> so this is a lovely email from Susan and it was, it was really nice to hear from someone who sort of is in this position that the Sarah Paulson character, um, Alice goes through, uh, in this episode, Richard, do you have any thoughts? I just want to thank her for that email. I mean, you know, obviously we didn't read the whole thing, um, on, on air, but it meant a lot to both of us, I know. Um, and, and it was, you know, really, a really important thing to read to kind of connect this show, which is based on real life to something that directly from someone's real life, you know? Um, And, uh, you know, I think that it can be easy when covering things um, from a a entertainment angle or critical angle, whatever um, to forget that there are many, many people hopefully out there who are watching it and feeling something very, intimate you know about about the material and um so it's always nice to hear from someone who uh you know really i think got something out of both the show uh that we're talking about and this podcast which you know that that's that's nice you know (laughs) that's 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 good to hear yeah sometimes we wonder if what we do uh is is like complete i wonder if what we do is completely silly and then we get a lovely email like that so thank you um and then this email comes from ian uh, and he writes, I want to pick up on Richard's astute observation about Phyllis's reaction to the pop music in the last episode. I increasingly think it contains a key to the show and will thus influence the note it chooses to end on. And then he writes, Joanne, I hope this makes up for the lack of Westworld style prediction emails about Mrs. America. Richard pointed out the irony that Phyllis is fighting a rearguard action to preserve 1950s American culture on legal grounds, while the pop music and her children's experiences in the college would indicate that she's losing the cultural battle. 
I do see, think somehow the show gets across rather well. Uh, I do think something that the show gets across rather well is that the fight over the era was mostly a proxy war over the future of feminism and gender relations in this country. And that is why the shakiness of Phyllis's legal arguments never actually caught up with her. From one perspective, then, the story is deeply ironic. While the ERA was defeated, feminism and cultural liberalism were not. However, if we narrow the scope of time to what the show covers, that irony is less clear. The politicization or partisanization, to be precise, of the ERA helped mobilize religious conservatives within the Republican Party and catalyze the conversion of white Southern Democrats to the GOP. As Jill Ruckelshaus alluded to last episode, the culture war served as a close cloak for the Goldwater conservatives to cover their less popular national defense, anti-safety net, and anti-civil rights agendas in quote-unquote family values rhetoric. Which is to say, the Reagan Revolution was a cultural phenomenon as much as a political one. Overall, the 1980s were a culturally conservative time. Rock music didn't go away, sure, but it was there as a kind of devil's bargain between boomers and the critical establishment. The price of the former's... Uh, ooh. This <laughs> is a challenge for me. Embourgeoisiement. Uh, okay. Bourgeoisie, I can say it, but there was other things on the other side of it. Anyway, um, and then Ian goes on to ask me, um, like, he has a theory. <laughs> he very kindly sent, like, a Westworld-style theory about, like, how he thinks the show is going to end. Um, and he's wrong. I'll just tell him he's wrong. Um, so he's wrong. Anyway, uh, so, uh, yeah, Richard, any thought about, about that, about the culture war and how it, how it, the culture war that they're fighting here in the 70s spills into the 80s, which is the decade that you and I largely, or at least our, our younger uh, childhood was spent in the 80s? Yeah, my dad always makes fun of me and my sister for being Reagan babies. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it's obviously more nuanced maybe than I laid out um, La- you know, recently, uh, you know, talking about l- losing the cultural war, winning the political war, um, those things are intertwined, of course, and there have been certain losses and gains in both arenas um, for both sides. Um, but I do think that, you know, it's telling that next week's episode is called Reagan. I do think that um, something that, you know, I think we've both long enjoyed about this series is since the beginning is that it is about a discrete moment in time, but it's also about every moment in time since um and to to kind of take this gradual it's not so it's so much that it's stepping back to get the bigger picture it's more like it's just following this narrative to somewhere where it's headed that then laps up very closely to our our current shores you know um and i think that um we obviously have television and movies that are way more progressive and open-minded and all that stuff than anything Phyllis and her cohort would have tolerated or a lot of people at the time. But there was, you know, still post all of this show um, and the history it covers an era of like the, 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 um, the listener said like of cultural conservatism that was, you know, baked into the rock music of the day was very misogynistic and, kind of conservative i mean there's a reason why like you know the the ted nugents of the world and all these kind of you know former rock idols are are kind of still heroes of the right and and have them themselves espoused those beliefs like phyllis's victory was not total but her loss was not total either um and i think that's something that um we're gonna have to reckon with next week um because i don't think it's gonna end well for quote unquote our side of things um but at least we have this episode houston where um i think a heart and mind uh change uh for the better 
Yes. Um, I, that's funny because like I never, I never thought of it as connected to this. But growing up in the eighties, I remember um, there being this really strong nostalgia for the fifties in the eighties. Um, I don't know if that if that like we listened to a lot of like fifties music, and not just because like that's what my parents grew up on, but it was just like a thing in the air, like oldies music, fifties music, like Leave It to Beaver, like Back to the Future. Sort of, yeah, yeah, this weird, like, 80s fascination with 50s, which is, like, is that 30-year nostalgia gap, you know, like, it's the reason why people are obsessed with the 90s now and stuff like that. It's that weird, like, 30-year cycle. But I, I never felt it. I feel that 90s nostalgia now. Um, and I've never felt it as strongly as I did in the 80s for that 50s nostalgia, that sort of um, whole thing. So I'm going to listen to, like... Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire um, when uh, we're done recording here today. Anyway, um, so, all right. So we're going to talk about this episode of Houston. I'm going to kick off with uh, just this really brief snippet of a conversation I had with the show's creator, Davi Waller. Uh, we'll have a longer chat with her uh, in our episode about the finale. But I did ask her um, about this episode, about the tonal difference in this episode, and about why it's called Houston instead of Alice. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. This episode, episode eight, uh, Houston feels like a tonal departure from the rest of the series. When did you get the idea that you wanted to do um, something like this that is a that is even more subjective than the other episodes we've seen? Um, we we were breaking the story for this episode. Um, we were all none of us had ever heard about this convention, which um, many people call like four of the most important days in the women's history that no one's ever heard about. And we had never heard about it. And we were really struck by how little conflict there was among the feminists. Not that there wasn't conflict, but that it seemed to really have been these four days of camaraderie and unity and working together. And they finally, you know, embraced lesbian rights on the agenda. And there was a resolution for women of color and the, and so we're like, well, that doesn't make for great drama if everyone's getting along really well. <laughs> what are we going to do? And I remember we were stumped for quite a long time. And I was like, we absolutely have to, you know, there was so much fighting and drama and conflict in the previous, you know, during the state meetings in episode seven, like, what are we going to do for eight? And I remember I, I thought, well, I said, well, what if we're looking at this the wrong way? Instead of trying to figure out what is the feminist side of the story, what if the whole journey of this episode is told through the eyes of the person who's most scared to go there, for whom there's the most drama in going into this world, and that would be Alice. And at that point in um, pre-production, we'd already cast Sarah Paulson. So I knew we had Sarah and that she could own this episode. <laughs> so we could do that with Alice. So um, that's how it really came about. And, and, really we got excited about the idea of, you know, what does an awakening look like? Like, what does it actually look like? We keep talking about the series about how people respond to change and why for some people it's so threatening and for other people it can't come soon enough. 
you know, what is that? This is the first time that Alice is leaving her bubble and actually spending a lot of time with these women that she is so afraid of and who threaten her. What does that actually look like, like on the ground? Um, and this is an opportunity in the series to really dramatize that in a one hour. Mm, is, that, that, we, is there a reason to call the episode Houston instead of Alice? Um, I think because a couple of reasons. One was, you know, Alice is a composite character and all the other episodes are named after real life women. And so I didn't want there to be any confusion that Alice is a real life person. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also Houston really seemed the show is so much a character like that moment in time is almost its own character. And so it seemed like the right uh, to depart a bit from the titles for that one. Did you know, did you notice that there were no men in the episode till the final scene? No, no men. That's a big part of it. I just wrote on a post-it. The no very final scene. Men. <laughs> no men allowed. <laughs> I'm curious if people notice it when they watch. Oh, well, probably everyone subjective. did, and I feel a little stupid that I didn't. No, 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 no. I'm, no, no. I don't, most people, I don't think, no one has mentioned it, so. <laughs> I thought I'd give you that little tidbit. Thank you great. for that tip. And so similarly, you know, when we go into the next episode, it's it's titled Reagan, and... I don't want to like read too much into it, but are, you know, are we meant to take some sort of like the era of the women's movement is over and this, this episode is for <laughs> a man? <laughs> yes. That's exactly what you're supposed to take away. The party is over guys. Uh, Reagan is in. The backlash is firmly taken hold. Um, <laughs> so the uh, <laughs> <laughs> real crash after Houston. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, the main setting for this episode is the 1977, uh, you know, women's convention. Uh, I had never heard of this uh, before we watched this show. Richard, had you heard of the 1977 women's convention? I had not, which is why at the start of this episode, it's so surprising, interesting to, you know, see this real news footage, hear these real news broadcasters talking about the largest gathering of women in history, I, I I would I would suppose there is some provable metric for that, um, but this you know this was a big thing that was tethered to not just this one piece of legislation but a whole broader movement, um, and yet yeah it was completely not included in any recent history that I was taught in school or was taught at home. Um, so I, I think it's really I don't I would I wouldn't want to say this is being unearthed by this show because there are plenty plenty of people alive who remember it. Uh, and plenty of people who are younger than that who've learned about it. But for me, um, yeah, the show did a good service in terms of, you know, I had, again, I had no idea. So I'm glad that I do now. So the, um, some of the keynote speakers at this uh, convention were Rosalind Carter, Betty Ford, Lady Bird Johnson, Credit, Credit Scott King, um, some characters that we would recognize from the show, Jean Stapleton and Maya Angelou read this Declaration of American Women 1977 that she wrote. Um, so there was an opportunity here, if they wanted to, to do sort of like a more... Mm, 
journalistic almost sort of you could have hired actresses to play these first ladies or Maya Angelou etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, instead we took a very subjective journey through and we, we spent barely any time with the you know women who have been organizing this event and instead the, we are subjectively on this journey um, with the character of Alice played by Sarah Paulson and I think that's a genius way to make something so big feel um, not small but intimate um, I think it's a brilliant framing of the episode. Uh, and and Richard, when I um, when you, when you were first talking to me about watching this episode, I brought up the episode of Mad Men uh, called "The Suitcase," which is basically a Peggy Dawn two hander um, episode of Mad Men, a, f- a famous episode of Mad Men. It's sort of what it reminded me of. Obviously, there's a lot more people involved in this episode, but that idea of just like narrowing the scope down. Um, you sort of called it almost a bottle episode. Um, which is a term for a TV show, which is like sort of all set in one location kind of thing. Um, what do you make of, of this perspective shift? Even, even though each episode has been kind of from a singular woman's point of view or, or, or featured a singular woman, this is the one that is the most inside one woman's head. Well, I, I rewatching the episode. Um, I was thinking about how what it's about is an exercise in compassion. And I think a lot of people, and look, I'm just going to be like nakedly partisan on this issue. I think a lot of the right as it exists in a modern context, starting back in this era of the seventies is about a fundamental lack of compassion and and, an unwillingness to see uh, the humanity of other people, an unwillingness to understand that their lives might be, be arranged differently than yours, that they might be subject to different um, uh, stresses and oppressions than yours, that um, and, and that doesn't invalidate them. There is not one, you know, rigid um, uh, ideal to conform to, that the best politics is the one that, you know, uh, as long as it's not harming anyone, includes the most people, that, that tries to make everyone's lives better in whatever way they choose to live their lives. Again, if those choices don't harm anyone else. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that that is fundamentally the difference that we have really starkly arrived at um, in 2020. And so this episode, you have uh, uh, Alice who has lived in a pretty sequestered sheltered Shelter, world yeah. yeah, and has chosen this cause because it's the one that reifies her existence. She says in this episode, I came here to defend myself. Um, she has a mentor hero sort of older sister bully kind of character in Phyllis. Um, who she's hooked a lot of her, you know, burgeoning uh, kind of awareness to. Um, and then she's stuck out in the actual real world that she, her politics rail against. And in just one night is confronted with all the variants of being, all the differences among women, among class, among race, among sexuality. And what she sees in her long dark night of the soul, which is a term I use in my interview with Sarah, um, it's not that dark. I don't think it's actually enlightening. Um, what she sees is that, like she says in the episode, like who is attack? Who are we defending ourselves from? You know, if anything, they look like the attackers because they're saying this is wrong, this is wrong. You have you can't do this. You can't do this. You have to do this. That's her side saying that. Um, and so I think this is, like I said, an exercise in compassion. 
um, and and one woman waking up to just how narrow her rhetoric rhetoric is. And yes, I think that is something that is much, much more true of the right than it is of the left. What's interesting in this episode, uh, we've seen, um, you know, Melanie Linsky is a fantastic performer, and she's been doing a fantastic job all season long. But without Phyllis there, you see Rosemary um, Thompson, who's a, you know, a real life figure, sort of uh, grow into that, even more so into that leadership role, something that she's been sort of like eagerly taking more and more. And um, she is a, a different kind of leader than than Phyllis is. Um, but exactly right that intolerance that that digging that constant needling and digging and like negativity and snide remarks and all this sort of stuff and and the way in which all the women like that pam like alice and pamela um are the are these two sort of like twin pines in this just like really nasty environment uh of the other women here and um and the way that that contrasts with what she sees, like the woman sharing a room with her, sort of like welcoming her in the and then and then sitting there in her room at the end of this night and watching these women trying to find common ground with with warmth and humor and how that contrasts with uh, the fear and anxiety that, uh, you know, is shot through her organization um that fear of failure that fear of being belittled um and torn down um i think is just really masterfully done yeah and and look at the end of the episode she hasn't issued some grand declaration of a changed mind you know we right. see it she she does say something to rosemary and all the rest and she's you know like what what, what are we really doing but you know and then sarah again points this out in the interview is that like she's still believes what she believes and that she you know she's she's she wants to be a homemaker she believes in 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 the way that her life has been arranged um but what she's seeing is like why can't we do that why can't we believe in the family what we we won't have abortions we won't do this we won't be lesbians but what what is it about the existence of those things that so offends us that so that that we kind of pretend is encroaching on our lives um and 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 I think that like obviously this show has shown that there has been rigidity and lack of compromise on the left in you know in 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 Gloria's mm-hmm. movement in Bella's movement yeah. in 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 Betty's movement like of course there has been uh, have been but they are much more willing to to brook that kind of difference than you know anyone like Phyllis or Rosemary is and I think that watching one fictional woman. Um, come to that realization uh i think as as the person who emailed us says like shows how there is a path out of that and that has been the path for many people and we don't really know where alice is going to go after this but like we know that in real life there have been plenty of people who have seen some sort of have been confronted with a different kind of thinking a different way of being and realized not that their situation is so has been so profoundly wrong, but that there's nothing profoundly wrong about the other thing, you know. Um, and I, I just, I, I, th- I really devalue, I value the episode for that. I also think this episode is really funny. It is, it is absolutely, yeah. Paulson's great. Um, I, I do, I love a a drug trip episode, honestly, and um, you know, and that idea that like a Christian the, pill trip, Joanna. I'm sorry, a Christian pill trip. Um, uh, the idea. In the sixties and seventies and and beyond, but like you know, in in the in the first flush of like 
mainstreaming drug use um, in, in America, this idea that taking drugs would expand your mind, expand your consciousness, and that's sort of exactly the impact. It like without that drug experience, um, like the Alice character, I don't believe would have been open to uh, receptive to the things that she sees on this, on this journey. But I do like that her journey here after her disastrous sort of press interview starts with meeting this character, Cora played by the lovely Julie white. Um, oh, so good. And once just, just exactly the right energy for that scene. I love her every time she shows up and yeah, she's just great here. And, and so these are two women who have so much in common until the one thing that they don't, and Alice's initial reaction is fear and anger. Like she's been duped somehow. Um, but uh, like that scene's great. And I love, I love their interaction, but actually the part that really gets me is like immediately after and she calls and she gets, I believe it's her mom on the phone and her mom's, you know, it's, this is November. So she's getting Thanksgiving together. And she asks for like a corn beef, a uh, cornbread stuffing recipe. And Alice knows it off by heart. And you see her sort of crumpling as she's just listing off, you, you know, like she's told she can't, she can't give a speech. She can't give a press interview. She can't do this. She can't do that. And then she's like, Oh, is this the one thing I can do? Uh, the one thing I can do is give a, a cornbread stuffing recipe over the phone by heart. Like that moment really, really uh, hit hard for me. And it was her grandmother's recipe. It's not even her, or, own, you know, right, right, it, yeah. it's just this legacy of, of things that she's inherited. And there's a value in that. Absolutely. It's sweet that she wants to make her grandmother's recipe. And it's great that she knows that I'm sure it's delicious, you know? Um, but I think her realizing that like, it's not that there's anything wrong with any of that, with, with, with making a nice home, with cooking, with doing all that stuff. It's just that to her in that moment, it feels awfully small and it feels limited. Um, and um, the very idea, I think that she's realizing that, that, that you would want to, wall off the rest of the world of possibility to women to favor this one thing. Um, you know, I think it strikes her as kind of ridiculous and heartbreaking. Um, while also, you know, she doesn't forsake it, but she realizes that like prizing that above all else and kind of only that um, is a pretty lonely way to be alive. Yeah. There's also the modulation, um, throughout of her relationship with Pamela, um, who is played by Kaylee Carter and is fantastic also mm -hmm. in this episode. Um, as this, you know, this, this woman who's been, uh, in almost every episode we've seen, we've got, we've gotten hints of the sort of domestic, um, situation that she has she has a husband that she can't even tell that him that she's here um she's like i can't get pregnant again i just can't do it like all this sort of stuff and you have the ups and downs of alice being kind of awful to her and then apologize and and then like supportive of her back and forth and finally setting into this settling into this i will help you i will support you and that support that that support of women for other women rather than reprimanding them vocal like taking the side of the patriarchy and saying like you need to tell your husband i need to take you back i've taken you across state lines without informing your husband all this sort of stuff like that she she shakes that off over the course of this episode and that's a really uh a really strong and powerful thing uh to see you know yeah and i think that one one kind of 
crucial nuance in the scene where she's saying, I can't go home, is she says, I'll just get pregnant again. As if it's this inevitability that she has no control over, that this is just a thing that happens to her, which it probably, I think, for that character is the reality that, it, you know, it, that it is that, you know, that she doesn't feel she has any control because she's been told that the right thing to do is to cede that control to her husband. Um, and, you know, loaded in that, that, that brief exchange is this giant word that's choice, you know? And, um, and, and, and I think that, you know, you see, I think Alice realized like what the implications of the word choice are. It is not requirement. What, 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 what the, the left is talking about with that issue is the option to do what you want to do with your body, um, rather than have it be this, well, I'm just going to go home and then he's just going to make me pregnant again because I have nothing, I have no recourse in that, in that exchange. Um, I think it's a really, Ugh, it's 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 you feel so so bad for her for her character and but and and if anyone um watches that performance by Kaylee Carter and would like to see more of her uh she's in the great uh movie on Netflix called uh Private Life uh with uh, Catherine Hahn and uh, Paul Giamatti uh that is well worth seeking out. Excellent. Yeah, she's fantastic in in this episode in the series as, as a whole and it's just a it's a beautiful quiet performance that when you go back through, you know, when you watch Mrs. America again, which you should, uh, knowing sort of how important the Pamela character will be towards the end of the season, it's really fascinating to watch her quietly lay the track for this in other scenes. Yeah, and the irony that she would go as this representative of this, you know, traditionalist movement about, you know, women's place and ceding to male authority and ceding to patriarchy. And she goes to it as an escape from all that. That's their, that's their only way she can get out. And even then she's not really supposed to be there. Um, it's just so sad. I mean, it's just bitterly, bitterly sad. So part of her, you know, so they, they wind up driving down, there's all this disaster around it. And, and Pamela reveals, uh, you know, as you say, like she had to do that because she wouldn't know how to pay for it otherwise. Um, because this goes back to something um, I think Margot Martindale talked about last week, which is this uh, thing that I forget, which is that women weren't allowed to have credit cards of their own. Right. Um, so I thought it was interesting. And, and, and just the amount of the amount that that alone limits the freedom of a woman, right? So I just thought it was interesting. So the the National Conf- Women's Conference, the intention of it was to vote on, uh, I think it's like 26 planks or something like that. Y- you know, not to... It wasn't it wasn't a political convention. It was just sort of like, let's all figure out what we agree on. And this is how we as a as a collective body of women will push these policies forward, you know, and and we'll get to sexual orientation because that's important. But there were like a number of things, you know, like uh, arts and humanities, battered women, child abuse, disabled women, um, you know, the ERA is definitely a plank here or something. But what I thought was interesting is the only plank that got a unanimous support of these planks was the credit issue. Uh, and according to Wikipedia, this plank argued that women should have equal credit and be informed of their rights pertaining to credit in order to ensure that women had equal access to credit regardless of gender. The conference determined that the Equal Credit Opportunity Act needed to be passed. Consequently, the credit issue was the only plank out of all 26 that was approved unanimously. So this idea that like, you know, and this is the point that Alice is trying to make 
um, in this in this slightly fictionalized version, I don't we don't see them voting on this. But Alice is like, there are a number of these planks that we actually agree with mm-hmm. them on education, et cetera, et cetera. Like we don't have objections to this. Just to object object to just object uh is is brainless is mindless sort of thing you're not actively engaging in the conversation but i i just find it really interesting that this idea of credit is something that even like the rosemary thompson of the world could uh vote and agree on uh at something like this you know yeah yeah it's pretty staggering to think it was not even 50 years ago right. you know i mean not even, barely 40 years ago so uh, you call this a dark night of the soul. I I tried to like shove my English degree in here and be like, oh, it's like Dante and the circles of Inferno, like blah, blah, blah. Um, Alice through the looking glass, however you want to say it. But like she's she has these few stops um, on her night. Uh, she sort of she wanders around the convention. Uh, Richard, do you want to highlight any of the ones that particularly stood out to you? Well, I want to try her new way of eating that she invented uh that looks like a choking hazard but i'm willing to give it a try with probably like mo- not very solid food um, right like a like a pudding you'd save on you'd save on uh washing dishes yeah I can think. you choke on pudding i don't know um, <laughs> Let's find out. but yeah I, I just think that like every little beat that she hits i mean it's like this odyssey where she's going to different you know aegean islands or something and discovering right. a new creature and um, and, and, and what happens every time she discovers a new creature? No one harms her. She's fine. She maybe learns something. She maybe experiences some kindness. She gets fed, you know? Um, and I think that's like all valuable uh, stuff. But I, I think that the centerpiece of that, of course, is, which I think we talked about with, you talked about with Nisi and I talked about with Sarah, is this, this, this great meeting of the minds of these wonderful act, two actors, uh, actors, um, where uh, she ends up singing, uh, Alice ends up singing a Woody Guthrie song, not realizing, uh, as so many people on the right who enjoy certain artists' music, don't realize that uh, his politics don't align with theirs at all. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think of Chris Christie loving Bruce Springsteen, or really any, you know, boomer man who's like, conservative and loves bruce springsteen it's like have you listened to the lyrics <laughs> uh like really listen to them um so i think that seems great it's funny it's sad it's sweet it's um it's a really good example of what a kind of exchange across uh ideological divides um could ideally look like i think excellent well let's hear from nisi nash about that scene that she uh could not keep a straight face for filming with sarah paulson And, and what was your favorite thing that you discovered about her in the sort of uh, research? I think I would have to say my favorite thing was that she was unapologetically who she was and she was very bold. You know, it was a, you know, she wanted to be in this movement to not be in, just inclusive, not just include uh, black women, but she embraced lesbian women as well. You know, which was bold at the time, you know, to say all of these voices matter. I really, I loved the scene early on in the season when she's not just talking about making room for for lesbian women in this movement, but also just working with everyone, working with, you know, working with white women, even while being frustrated with white women, um, which was just a, a really interesting um, attitude, because I feel like so often, you know, so often the women's movement is divided. And it's hard 
for every person in the women's movement to see it from someone else's perspective. Do you know? And the thing about that is that's how you know when you are working with a group that may be a little more problematic or you may have to do a little bit more convincing or, you know, that bit of it. That's how you know that the greater goal is what you're serving and not yourself. Because you're saying, I'm not going to leave a stone unturned in all of this. I really love in the show the relationship between Flo and uh, Gloria Steinem, their friendship, um, which seems really honest and really strong. Can you talk about uh, that connection between those two women? I just think that you find, you know, when you want to do a thing, you can find unusual connections you know, or something that somebody would look outside of it and go, these two people are running around together. You know what I mean? Uh, (laughs) You know, so, and I love that, um, that these women are not, this is not a depiction of perfect women, of women without their challenges, you know, but still in the, in the fight together. There's this, um, this great scene between, you and Sarah Paulson uh, in the Houston episode where, you know, she's, uh, you know, out of her mind on drugs. Now, I knew this woman was talented, you know, very creative, dramatic actress, all of these things. <laughs> I will tell you that this is the absolute funniest person I have worked with in a long time. And I didn't <laughs> see the funny coming. I was very much like, who are you right now? I didn't that Sarah Paulson was that funny. She's so funny, in fact, that we laughed that night all night. She and I doing that scene off camera. We just kept just coming up with funny things that we were laughing about. So much so that we decided at the end of it that we wanted to do a buddy comedy together. <laughs> because, nothing, because nothing else seemed like it was going to make sense other than that. Like, no, we have to work together. I would love to see that. I would love it. Was any of that um, improvised, like when she's sort of on the floor scooping food out of a plate into her mouth or anything like that? Well, you know, she did. She did something different on all the takes, I feel like, you know, but it was all in that world. And because of Reno 911, I did not laugh because I've learned (laughs) not to ruin the take. You laugh after. Um, And then, you know, of course, there's this other like very, very moving part of that episode. I've talked to a couple of the women uh, who who are in the scene uh, on the Houston convention floor when you're all singing together and they talked, they, they mentioned it as sort of one of the most emotional moments filming this entire season of television. What was that moment like for you? I agree. You look at all those women out there, all kinds of women, and we all had to then still connect with each other. It was a very charged moment. And you, and you, you know, part of it is that you lament the fact that you missed it. <laughs> You're like, we got to recreate it. But this was powerful. Yeah. What was, what was that day like? I mean, cause it's, it's, you know, I'm watching this press screener. So there's like a lot of green screen cause they're going to like fill it out with a bunch of, you know, other women in the room. So you're in this like, stage which which has like green screen behind it and you're all sort of sitting where you're sitting but like what was what was that day like approaching that that big moment well I mean we all knew what you know we had in store for us you know what I mean and it was interesting because there was a lot of connective tissue between the women behind the scenes 
you know, where normally you might have a little break and, you know, everybody goes to their own space or back to their trailer, but we all kind of stayed a tight group that day, you know, so that when the, when we were in between takes, we would all just kind of fellowship together. Um, and so I think it, it, it provided a connective tissue even off camera. I've talked to some people who feel like the ERA, I don't know, passing the ERA now doesn't really matter, that it would be redundant, that we've already done the work. Um, I don't necessarily agree, but, well, you know, what do you think of that approach that, like, we've already fixed the things that these women were fighting for? Have we? Have we? Exactly. <laughs> Anything, was there any scene or moment that was particularly tough tough for you to to approach to film? I think one of my first scenes was uh, when I'm having the argument about uh, having lesbians be included. You know what I mean? And I think it, it kind of set the tone for flow as far as I'm concerned and with the other actors, you know what I mean? You come in on the first day and you already talking strong, you know, as a character, you know what I mean? And, you know, she definitely was a voice to be heard in it all. She also had the other challenge, I guess, if there's any, she had a very, you know, uh, I call it either a hot mouth or spicy vernacular. (laughs) So she 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 was blue indeed in in how she spoke, and I wanted to make sure that I did takes that honored that. I mean, because that's the truth of who she was. Now, whether or not they use those takes, you're like, okay, we're gonna do we're gonna do a blue one. You don't have to use it, but I want to do it. Is that sort of the approach? Yeah, that's great. That's great. I love that because I because that's who she was. I mean, you would look at her in in any in any. You know, in interviews and the things that I was able to find online, you know, she would she would drop an F bomb. She would, you know what I mean. Something you know, we've been talking about throughout in this uh, series is, you know, w- women using their um, their appearance as part of their weapon in the fight. And this is true of Gloria. And then it's like you know a, a different thing for Betty for Dan. Flo has this incredible style. Um, you know, what do you think, how is that sort of a, a tool that she used in this, in this fight that she was fighting? My takeaway was I'm going to put it all on. I'm going to put on tit, a ring on every mm-hmm. finger. I'm going to put on three chains. I'm going to have a slogan on a shirt. I'm going to put all the buttons on. So it, 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 it was very extra in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that if there was any doubt, if I'm not speaking to you, my wardrobe is speaking for me, and you get it. You smell what I'm cooking right away. Right. Something that I've I've uh, enjoyed hearing from folks who are on the show is what it was like. You know, you you've done so much great work. 
Um, and you've done a lot of work, you know, with with um, largely female casts like Claws and, and other things. But this almost in front of and behind the camera seems like one of the most sort of populated by women um, shows that have ever existed in television. Um, what was that like for you going to work every day um, on this particular set? Man, this this group, we, 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 let me tell you, you know, because a lot of times it can be said that when women get together, it's, a, it's problematic. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a lot of reality shows that are all geared around that, that women can't get along when they get together, it's this and it's that. I will tell you that these women, we, would, we, we enjoyed the company of one another so much that if one person got to town because they hadn't been working, everybody else would be like, oh, so-and-so and so-and-so is coming to town. Let's meet downstairs for a drink or for some food. You know, so it was a tight group. It was a it was a tight group in while we were there. We definitely loved on each other, supported each other, and wanted to spend time. Well, you, you think about it. After you've been at work 16 hours and somebody look at you and go, well, what you about to do? <laughs> <laughs> and you know they like you. <laughs> what do you hope um, people who are largely ignorant of this fight um, – We'll get out of the show um, and and take forward with them. Well, I, you know what? It's a it's a history lesson for sure for people who may not have known or may not have been around. You know what I mean? Or you delve a little deeper yeah. and you say, "Oh, I remember that," but I didn't know the behind the scenes was happening. Right? Exactly. You know what I mean? And and hopefully it may make a little bit of your own research to look up some of these people and, you know, get to know them and the movement a little better. I think one of the lines that I love in that uh, scene is when Alice says, no, it's a patriotic. And uh, Nisi's character goes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you don't have uh, the monopoly on that word. You don't yeah. own that word. Uh, I mean, they kind of do now, but um, yeah, uh, it's, it's a, it's, it's a great, like, like there's a, it's a, it's a teaching moment scene that doesn't feel preachy or didactic, you know, because like, she's just like, Nisi's just like leaning back, like, yeah, you know, she's, she's amused. She's not like lecturing her. Um, And I think it's a, it's a nice tone for that kind of thing. Well, I think this whole and this whole episode does exactly that, right? Which is like it's such a teaching moment, um, but there's so much humor in it um, that you know it, it's not a it's not a hard pill to swallow at all. Which is like the series as a whole. I keep saying like this isn't vegetables, right? This is like this is such a joy for to watch. It's painful at times for sure, but it's not like a slog by any stretch. Uh, the the moment when uh, Alice. It's like eating, eating, I don't know, like pie crust or whatever, something out of like a pie tin. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then like (laughs) grabs, like Rosemary takes it back. Is like, did you get that out of the garbage? Grabs it from her. She go, Paulson goes in for another bite, eats Mm -hmm. it, and then just like wipes her hand on her dress as she walks out of the room. She not only walks, slowly backs out of the room. (laughs) So funny. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the physical Um, stuff here is amazing. Um, You know, I I, I don't want to, I feel like I keep saying, as I say in the interview with Sarah, like she talks a bit about like playing fucked up, frankly, and um, and 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 the the sort of physical approach to that, um, which I think is so successful. 
The other thing I want to talk about um, in this episode is the use of Gloria Steinem, uh, which is... So the use of Gloria Steinem throughout this season as someone that Phyllis is dying to, like, meet and debate and all this sort of stuff like that, and Gloria's like, nope, I'm... I'm I'm not interested. I'm not doing it. Um, so, you know, the the women see Gloria Steinem for the first time, like, walking down the hallway in slow motion. She's almost constantly in slow motion. Um, at one point during her, like, drug trip uh, down on the convention floor, uh, Alice walks past three women who are dressed like Gloria, but are not Gloria, and she smells them. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and then later... Um, she and Pamela see Gloria again in the hallway and I feel love by Donna Summer, which came out this in 1977 uh, plays. And it's just, <laughs> and like, I hope Rose Byrne had a really good time just walking slowly down that hallway, tossing her hair uh, yeah. <laughs> for them. I just, I, I love the use of Gloria. In this. Well, it's funny because the way that Gloria is used in this episode, um, the, the way that they, that the, the way that they, they frame Gloria in the episode, um, it's funny because I think that a critic of our podcast or this show, in particular this episode, could be like, oh, this is all progressive fantasy. The dumb little, you know, Twitter, twi- Tweety Bird conservative lady, like, goes on a trip and realizes she's wrong about everything. Like, is there an element of that to this episode? Sure. Fine. But, like, we've had to sit with a lot of fucking Phyllis Schlafly for the past seven episodes. So, like, <laughs> give us this. Um, but I think that the funny thing is that the episode is aware of that. It, it, it's, it's clued into a little bit of that. And, and, and I think the Steinem of it all, they're really just going full tilt into, like, her alluring legacy rather than her immediate personhood in this episode you know this these slow walks down the hallway and the tossing of the hair and the perfect outfit and the, the just kind of easy breezy style like i don't doubt that that was steinem represented for a lot of women on both sides of things or any sides of things um then and now um and i think what's interesting about you know this the the, the psychology of this episode is alice i think finally finding she doesn't speak it out loud but at least internally finding the articulation of what it is about gloria that fascinates her and it turns out it's the same thing that fascinates her about phyllis right except when she encounters gloria gloria like gives her a nice little compliment about her dress and phyllis says fix your face right yeah so yeah, exactly, and and um, it's it's what she finds alluring about Phyllis, but also but we see Gloria in in this meeting in in the hotel room, uh, you know, once again trying to find some common ground with like kindness and warmth and humor, um, which I think is really interesting. So so here we are. I love this episode. I love this series. We're about to hit on my first like major critique of the series, which is this. Uh, in this episode, we meet um, a character, Carmen Delgado uh, Vota, who's played by um, Andrea Nevedo, who is an actress that I really love uh, for her work on like Jane the Virgin, among other things. She's fantastic. We see her here in this like hotel room conversation. Um, I, I, we'll see her, spoiler alert-ish question mark. We'll see her again in the finale. But I was like, where is she? Why haven't we seen more of her, right, throughout 
the season. And then I was looking into this woman. She was the co-chair of the committee with Bella. And you would not know that uh, at all uh, based on this show. And so, like, are there only certain stories you can tell in a show like this? Yes. Are you limited in certain things? Yes. But I have to say, like, I think for a show that has been really great about making sure that it... um, criticizes the whiteness of the women's movement to erase a historical figure like Carmen in that way feels a little off to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, Richard. No, I I would agree. Um, And I think the fact that um, the real Carmen was, you know, from Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico is so often um, ignored as a part of America. You know, if, if we are specifically dealing with American politics in this show, uh, Puerto yeah. Rican politics are American politics. This was a Carter appointee, like you said. Like uh, she seems to have been a pretty significant figure at the time, uh, and to really only be meeting her in episode eight for one scene um, right. feels like a pretty glaring omission. Um, maybe there's stuff on the cutting room floor that we don't see, but um, you know, I I know that certain things have to be sacrificed for time, but it, it feels like there there there's sh- some room should have been found. Certainly, the show the show has been so good about this stuff that I was like, I was surprised. Like, I feel like in another biopic or other show, I'd be like, well, yeah, it's a typical adaptation or whatever. But this is this just feels like, you know, the one glaring omission uh, as far as I know uh, so far. And I was just sort of like, huh, all right. Well, um, thankfully, she has yeah a, a little more to do in the finale. Not not I don't want to overpromise it, but we'll, we will see her again. Uh, she's great in this little scene, though. Um, and, you know, Paulson is once again just hilarious staring at them um, in her like nightgown brushing her hair and it's you know and and there's nothing wrong with that any of that but it's just it just frames her so differently and it makes it just makes her seem so naive and and the kind of tragic irony is she is that she's thought that with phyllis that she was actually arriving at some you know higher plane of enlightenment and being around other women you know from a different perspective for just one night I think, you know, again, it makes her realize how how limited um, her thinking actually had been. But what I do think is really um, smart about this episode and smart about the series as a whole is that it does give Phyllis the credit she does deserve for engaging a character like Alice in politics in the first place. Like she says earlier in that conversation with the character, the core character, I never voted until Phyllis told me I should vote. You know what I mean? And like, yes, she's the... Alice is the one who brings the ERA to Phyllis in the first place, but like Phyllis brought Alice to this world. And, and, and the truth is as you know, the Bella character said a couple episodes ago, like, um, or was it last week? Time flies last week. Um, you know, you're working girls. Like Phyllis has done this for you. Um, she has, she has, like uh introduce you all to a, a, an opportunity you didn't know existed so there we right go. and and, and the, just the, the the hope for that kind of new, new civic engagement would be then to um begin to think critically for yourself about the things that you're talking about and you know is there somehow with the kind of rigid um authority of phyllis or you know the, the burgeoning authority of rosemary are you trading one master for another you know exactly um yeah and, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't seen the last episode, so I'm curious if we're going to get more Alice. But if not, um, 
I did a- I did ask Sarah where she thinks Alice ends up, so. Oh, nice. Oh, I can't wait to hear that. Um, so the um, so we're finally at, at the uh, you know we're on the convention floor. I rewatched the episode right before we recorded, and it's the first time I've seen the episode that didn't have like green screen behind everyone. So the, the effects are finally in, and I got to see what it was supposed to look like. So it's funny. Awesome. I watched the episode last week. It did have green screen, and then today it didn't. So they've yeah they quickly added that in. They got it in there, but um, every woman that I've talked to who worked on the show, when I asked them sort of like what was the scene that they felt like the most emotional about, it was this scene with everyone together, them singing We Shall Overcome. Uh, You've got a number of characters here, Margaret, Brenda, and Jill all have their daughters with them. Um, And yeah, it's just like a tremendously powerful moment and a powerful moment for Alice as well, for Pamela. Uh, Rosemary gets up and and it's really disturbing uh, to see Rosemary, the evolution of Rosemary, because I guess if you, you know, if you want to talk about the awakening of Alice in this, you know, Rosemary herself has gone through an evolution because I feel like when they first went to go meet uh, Lottie Beth Hobbs, Rosemary was as sort of repulsed as Alice by Lottie Beth's whole like Rose speech. And then you see Rosemary give the Lottie Beth like uh, abortion rose speech on the floor. And so to see her just like her transformation is equally is is a disturbing thing for me to see, um, like radicalized in another direction. But, um, you know, that that seems to be a straw for Alice. And, you know, she she just is 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 so overcome as I was overcome uh, watching this scene. Yeah, I mean, the word comfort kind of implies something passive. Um, but I think, you know, my, I'm talking to myself, really. Um, anytime that you're feeling sort of despairing about uh, how bad things are and perhaps are getting even worse, um, how bad things have been, it is nice, comforting, to know that there have been people fighting together. There will be people fighting. There are people fighting currently. Um, and this scene is such a nice reminder of that, that 40 something years ago, these women gathered with, you know, a tremendously important cause, uh, and, and had, had high spirits about it amid setbacks. Um, we know that this particular thing, the ERA is not going to work out for them. Um, but a lot of them, you know, most of them stuck with it, uh, are still are uh, those who are alive. Um, so I think it is a nice little button amidst all of the kind of chaos and uh, and not disunity, but but uh, you know opposing viewpoints, all those kind of prickly things. That there is at least this one moment of celebratory kind of communion and 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 mutual strength. It's it's I just found it very warming. The um, we also see at the beginning of the episode we we sort of overhear. Um, Betty Friedan talking about how she's not going to budge on her stance that, you know, um, to sort of exclude lesbians from the, or the gay issue, I guess, I think how she puts it, um, from uh, the women's uh, movement here. And by the end of the episode, she had her, I guess she had her own uh, come to Jesus experience at at this conference, because by the end of the episode, she stands up in support of, which is a big uh, change for Betty Friedan uh, in this episode. And really, um a really powerful moment as well yeah yeah um and you know she's betty is careful to say like 
to help them with their own cause. Not she's not right. she's not tethering them together so closely. Um, but she does realize that in that moment, um, you know, they, they at least have are pointed in the same direction. It is, a, you know, a movement moving a needle uh, for, you know, so like watching, watching women within the movement uh, have their transformation, watching women outside the movement have their transformation, etc. Um, so then we, we leave the convention hall and we go and, and we see Phyllis and Phyllis is largely absent from this episode, barring this like horrifying dream sequence that Alice has. Um, and then this final meeting and it's, uh, more so than Alice's Alice kind of hanging back. The thing that really like hurts in this final moment is, uh, Pamela sort of eagerly running towards Phyllis, uh, in this misguided idea, uh, that, you know, this is someone who will help her. Um, mm-hmm. and Alice is, has clearly understood that this is probably not the case. <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and, and this is, this is something that, you know, truly happened that Phyllis Schlafly tried to sort of steal the spotlight from the women's convention by hosting her own convention in Houston to get the same number of people. Uh, we could talk about crowd size, uh, if we want to, but the reports I've read, say that like Phyllis got like about 15,000 to the convention's 20,000, but that's still incredibly impressive. Mm -hmm. 15,000 because like the, you know, the women's convention was supported with like millions of dollars of support from the white house. You know what I mean? And they had like, so the fact that Phyllis was able to, you know, like, I don't want to sound like I'm giving Phyllis too much credit because like I, I really vehemently obviously disagree with all of her stuff, but I mean, she, she did this. She did this thing. So um, that's just a fact. She's a she was a resourceful, uh, effective figure. I mean, there's no denying that. Um, you know, uh, I, again, I didn't know anything about that convention either. So um, I don't know. Maybe I should read up on that, or maybe I don't need to. I don't know. You're fine. I think you're fine. <laughs> so uh, and, and but so then you know this, we're in the penultimate episode. This could have been, as you say, like this could have been the last episode um you know if you want to it's it's so good that it feels like this could be a season finale but i think um a season finale needs to reckon more directly with the phyllis of it all i think uh the last episode is titled reagan uh so we are at a pivot point (laughs) into a new administration right um so we'll get to all of that but the last shot of this episode i guess could have been a way to end this show and it's um you know shots uh our archive footage of of these like bibles being thrust in the air um as the crowd uh, at phyllis's gathering chants um screams uh and it's it's a really to me and it's not i'm not saying this in an anti-religion way but that degree of fervor is a really perturbing uh image to end the episode on yeah i mean you look you can be not anti-religion but be anti-dogmatic you know anti-dogma like um anti you know sort of perversion of a of a of a faith core tenets um, which is exactly what this whole movement was, um, at least by my read. I don't know. I'm not a theologian. I did go to a lot of Catholic school, though. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's. I'm really eager to watch the last episode. Um, this episode, obviously, I said it was so is like such a favorite of mine. Like it's just really great. 
um, for 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 its its ideas and its execution, everything. Um, I, you know, I think I think that the the sort of the gamble of watching this series and getting so invested in the series um, and in what it's talking about is it doesn't fucking end well, you know, uh, and it, 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 it ends essentially with a really big setback, um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I'll be very curious to see how they handle it. And I think that the final scene of this episode of Houston, um, for me anyway, sets the stage for some darkness, uh, to come. Um, and I'll be curious to see how they kind of calibrate that, um, as this show closes out. So if you if you want to, we're, we're going to get to Richard's great interview with Sarah Paulson in a second. If you want to like learn more about the the women's convention and what went on there, um, there's a documentary called Sisters Sisters of seventy seven, I believe it's called, um, that I watched little snippets of that are online, but you can watch the whole thing. Um, I don't know what platform. I think PBS has it, so um, you might want to check that out. There's also a, a New York Times article uh, titled "That Week in Houston" um, from December 1977, and it's a pretty exhaustive accounting of of things that went on. Like, for example, when Betty, when Tracy Ullman is Betty Friedan gets up to the mic and says this stuff, like that's pulled from this article, sort of stuff. So you know, you can you can you can read more about. Um, the non-Alice-related goings-on uh, at this convention. And I'm like, why don't we bring this back? Why don't we have... I mean, we had the Women's March. I mean, that's the whole thing, Richard, is like, we had the Women's March in 2017. And then that fell apart because the leadership was inherent... Like, it was a, it was a big splash. And then subsequent years either apathy or the fact that the leadership was, was incredibly flawed uh, in that organization. But isn't that what we're watching right here in Mrs. America of a flawed leadership uh, trying to lead a movement. And it's just sort of like, it's, I don't know. It's an all, it's all a little bit of history repeating, but. um. Well, yeah. I mean, look, we, their history is unfortunately time is not, uh, does not provide us easy bookends. It does not provide us a ton of closure on anything until someone dies. And even then, not really. Um, right. So uh, the, this story continues on until now uh, and will continue on. Um, uh, but the show is going to have to find a way to at least arrive at some sort of button. Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, again, I'm, I'm eager to see what that is. All right, so we will be back here um, next week. But first, let us hear from Richard Lawson and the great Sarah Paulson. Uh, well, I have the really, really distinct pleasure uh, right now of being on the line with uh, the star, I would say, of this episode, Houston, uh, Miss Sarah Paulson. Thank you, uh, Sarah, for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm biased, but I have to say, I think this is my favorite episode of an already very good show. Um, and obviously you are the centerpiece part of that. So thank you. Well, thank you. I'm happy to hear it. You know, I do like to please you, Richard. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that what I love about this episode in particular is that because Alice, um, the character you play, is a composite character, she's not Gloria Steinem, she's not Phyllis Schlafly, she, she's someone that the show can kind of, I guess, play with a little bit. Um, there's a little mm-hmm. bit of a looseness, a, more of a freedom to it. Um, is that something that drew you to the project, the idea that among this um, see of people playing real people, you got to do something a little bit more sort of made up for the show? Well, it's interesting. I think I actually felt sort of jealous of, of the people who were playing the iconic 
you know, central characters of the feminist movement, I felt, and, and even the counter movement, I felt, you know, walking into Kate's trailer and she's got, you know, the entire, you know, it's like being in the room of a, of a crazy person because every single wall is covered with pictures of Phyllis Schlafly and, you know, um, and even walking into the hair and makeup trailer, everybody having, you know, the, the real life person and then the actors, the counterpart and, you know, trying to match the costumes and the hair and the uh, people working on dialects and walks and all that kind of stuff is, is, is an actor's dream. Everybody loves to do that kind of thing. And I sort of resented being referred to as the composite character, it's like Sarah Paulson as the composite character. That was really like, just like, oh. unexciting to me, really. Um, the, the, um, the labeling of it in that way, um, because I felt sort of protective of, of Alice and wanting to, um, you know, try to embody her in a way that felt just as, as three-dimensional as these, you know, very, very famous women that were uh, populating the rest of the series. So um, I, I kind of felt two ways about it, both jealous of the people that were, that were getting to um, dive into the, the real, real truths of these women. And then I also felt a kind of freedom to, to create with Zabi this this woman who who in fact did not exist. There were women like Alice in Phyllis's orbit, uh, absolutely, but but there was more freedom there for sure. Yeah, and I think that like with that freedom comes an opportunity within just you know this fifty minute episode to track what I would imagine was an awakening for a lot of women at that time. Um, you know, to sort of be confronted with other ideas about womanhood or other ideas about, you know, freedom and independence. Um, it, it was, was this particular episode, this long dark night of the soul for Alice, was it pitched to you <laughs> as such? Um, Davi kept talking about, about uh, t- referring to it as Alice through the looking glass. It was just sort of Alice in Wonderland down the rabbit hole um, episode. And, and it was really a slow burn because in the beginning part of the series, you know, the first time you meet Alice, she's in curlers and in a hair salon. And by the end of this story and by the end of episode nine, you know, she's she's a different person. Um, and I would argue that my character is probably the, the one character that um, really begins the show one way and ends the show as a as a as a really different person internally anyway. Um, so I don't know. I. I, I sort of feel that there's something um, a nice line to be drawn in, in to, to, to parallel connection of, of where we are now a little bit uh, politically um, or, or at least how we, how we consume um, our information, you know, and this is absolutely a of um, basically getting her news and her information from a single source, which is really Phyllis. And, you know, lots of us find ourselves only watching MSNBC or only reading the New York Times or only watching Fox News and uh, reading the Wall Street Journal. And I think any time uh, you're only doing that, you are really giving yourself a rather narrow worldview. And I think with Alice, we were able to um, have a character who had, I think, a narrow worldview and and one that she felt very, like most people, very comfortable inside. And, and the minute she pulled back the curtain and realized that the people on the other side of the line were not her enemies, but rather real human beings that their own um, passions and heartbreaks and 
loves and lives was was a real eye opener to her. I think uh, she she really believed that the enemy was somehow uh, other in terms of not being human. It was it was the way I think a lot of us even today are able to um, throw and hurl such. Uh, hate or bigotry or or anything uh, of that um, ilk in the direction of those that don't believe what we believe is because you you forget that they're they're human beings and it it makes it easier to to stand behind some of that that thinking and I think for Alice the minute she she found herself in Houston in a sea of feminists and uh, she just kind of couldn't not be altered by it because she she comes in contact with so many real people and realizing that they're just not that different than she. And I think that that was really something for her. Yeah, I found myself wondering as I watched the episode, what Alice wanted in in going to the conference, mm-hmm. you know, and I, she says at one point, I came here to defend myself. Uh, which mm-hmm. is such an interesting line. And I, I'm wondering, how did you, what was your read of, of her psychology um, in, in making this choice? Obviously, she was really invested in going to this conference. Um, what did you think she wanted out of it? I think she was hoping to to have a place where she could make her point of view heard. I think she really felt, um, I think many of the women on the in the counter movement felt much like the women on the other side of the aisle felt, you know, unheard and unseen. And I think certainly the the megaphone that went along with uh, the media's willingness to to um, and desire for um, hearing the feminist side of the story more fully than I think the counter movement. I think they often felt um, Phyllis's group that they weren't given equal time. And so I think she felt she had a responsibility, particularly, I think, in the episode that precedes it in episode seven, she's very worried about the clan coming into um, their world, to the Eagle Forum world, and, and very, very uh, frightened by the idea that there would be some kind of um, sub-story of, of people who had hate filled in their heart and, and bigotry in their heart would be associated with our movement. And I think Alice is, is very frightened that that would be the way it would be held because that's just not how she thinks. And so she wants to go correct a, a perceived wrong and by, by showing up and, and hopefully, you know, she's been tasked with, with giving the, the um, sort of group's speech to the reporters. And, and, you know, I think she hopes to, she hopes to do right by Phyllis. I think she wants to impress Phyllis. I think she wants to go and 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 make Phyllis proud, really. And I think what ends up happening is she starts to see Phyllis in a in a different light. And I think that is equally terrifying to her as well. Have you ever had an experience like that where something about your worldview shifted in just a short amount of time? Hmm. You know, I had it a little bit playing Marsha Clark, there was a little bit of a, of a confrontation I had with myself uh, because I had been, and I think I talked about this plenty uh, then, that I had my own prejudice, uh, I think, uh, against her that was entirely um, predicated on how how easily I drank the Kool-Aid of what was being uh, served to me uh, in the media. And I just didn't do, do much uh, further thinking on the matter. I was just sort of gulping it down as if it were, you know, the only truth about her. So the more I learned about her, the more I kind of realized that I had sort of been guilty of laziness uh, of thinking um, and not sort of being interested in in learning anything more about that. And and somewhat too, as I'm 
prepping to to play Linda Tripp, there's a little bit of of that happening too. And I wouldn't say an opinion. The the thing I do feel um, proud about, about the Alice, the trajectory there, and it was Davi's uh, desire, Kate's desire, and mine as well, that like, this isn't about somebody dropping into the world of the the feminist world and and dipping her toe in in that water and then all of a sudden coming out a a clean new woman. This is, she, she still is a, a, a a woman of of much faith and a a dedicated homemaker. And that doesn't change. It's just more of the world is led into her, uh, her, her, her view. Um, And she doesn't become an an entirely different person. You know, I, I hate those kinds of things where like somebody has one experience, although it could be major, which I think Houston is for Alice. And then all of a sudden in the story, they're, they're just another person. They, they've dropped all the things that ever matter to them and, and the, the, the core belief system and their, their own moral compass kind of, you know, they drop it by the side of the road and go running in the other direction. But I, I, I think that's not really what happens here. It's, it's just her eyes have been opened and, and they can't be shut again after that. Yeah, I think the I think the episode is careful to to ground that reality in in that at the end when she gives this lovely speech to her cohort and they just you know say okay well time to go to the buses, um and and she says mm-hmm. it wouldn't be Christian you know so she's still holding mm-hmm. on to a exactly. really core tenet of herself but seeing it exactly. you know seeing other things pass through that that prism I guess yes and I think that's sort of I don't think it's a I don't think the moral of the story is like be a feminist it's better. You know, I think the she 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 goes into that world and it's impossible for her not to see these people she thought were her enemies as as and it just realizes that they're just human beings. And that had not occurred to her before. Um, I don't think um, they were these like monoliths. And, and you know, I, I just think it was um, just a very, very, very eye opening experience for what I have hoped or what I was trying to do in the beginning of the season uh, of, the, of the series. And again, I haven't watched it, so I don't know how it tracks, but trying to plant little seeds of Alice's uh, fundamental goodness and fundamental um, purity and innocence and openness um, so that you could buy that she would she would find herself in this situation and be open enough and not calcified to such a degree that she wouldn't, that she wouldn't be permeable to, and that, that, that not any, any, none of this could sink in and, and get inside her and have any kind of uh, tectonic plate shift for her. Um, the hope was that if I sprinkled some of that at the top, you would buy that for this. Otherwise I was like, that's going to be a big leap to go from. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, I, I hope that that was evident, but who knows? Yeah, no, those seeds are very well planted. And I think that's what's something that's so satisfying about this episode is that you see you get the the kind of result of all that, um, you know, legwork mm-hmm. um, in the beginning, um, or throughout the, the, the rest of what's come before. Um, it might be a trite question, but I, I feel like people are, are curious about this, because, you know, based on when we, we talked to Kate uh, for our first episode of this podcast, um, and I don't want to infer anything about your personal politics, but I would imagine <laughs> that, you know, Alice uh, says and is around some sentiments that you do not agree with. Um, I- mm-hmm. I'm curious what your kind of approach to that is, because there is an argument that I've seen some make particularly about the Phyllis Schlafly of it all on this show is, well, yeah, she Blanchett's doing a great job. She's she's human, but she's humanizing her. She's 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 turning this villain into somebody, um, you know, relatable or something. And 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 I'm I'm wondering is that was that a concern you had in terms of playing a character on, quote unquote, the other side of the issue? 
No, I don't know. I mean, I think it's hard to talk about, you know, actors are, you know, for better or worse. Um, I think that kind of challenge is, is, is part of what's interesting about it. It's like, how do I get inside of this? And with, with uh, a person to whom I have no real emotional connection, and I certainly don't have anything um, politically, uh, no allegiance there, nothing that aligns to cleave to either. So it's like, what, but, but I think at the end of the day, isn't Phyllis Schlafly, wasn't Phyllis Schlafly a, a person? So humanizing her, you know, I don't know that that's the goal, but sort of trying to understand why people do what they do and why they move through the world they do and why they hold this per- particular worldview, you know, and, and Phyllis had far greater aspirations than, than being at the head of this counter movement. And, and some people might argue it was all uh, a means to an end, which was hoping for some political appointment, you know, that, that never came. But, um, you know, I, I think it's very interesting to, to put on, uh, a pair of shoes that don't fit you, that aren't made for you, that aren't comfortable for you and trying to figure out how to walk in them. And I, I do think it's an opportunity to, to put yourself uh, on the other side of something that you have never entertained uh, as a way of thinking or feeling or viewing the world. And I do think certainly given where we're sitting now uh, in this really surreal and wild, terrifying time to, have any opportunity to to look at something from a different point of view is is only helpful you know the only get you know getting your information from one source any source even if it's a side you believe is on the right side of history doesn't mean it's you're getting the full the full scope of the thing so i always think there's value in in all sides of it and and i i don't i don't know i think we talked about this a little bit um when i played that that woman in 12 years of slave. It's like, I remember having actresses say to me, Oh God, I wouldn't even need on that part. I, 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 she was so horrible. I just didn't want to be associated with playing anyone that horrible. And I, I was always so perplexed by that because I thought, you know, how do you tell this very, very meaningful, necessary, uh, story about a time in our country's history without doing that? You, you can't, you can't tell it without telling the part, uh, about the, um, about a woman like this who was so um, unknown to herself and had no ability to do a deep dive internally and no ability to question what she had been taught. And that's, that's some of how the story gets, gets told. And if you shrink away from that or shy back from that, the rest of it can't be told to the, I'm I'm not trying to say that uh, without me, there's no, there's no movie. (laughs) I don't mean that. I'm just sort of saying, you know, you've got to have every piece of the puzzle in order to, have the puzzle you, you you to have it really you know to stand back and look at it and go oh there it is that's the whole story and I just don't think it and I remember Steve McQueen saying to me you can't judge her you won't be able to play you won't be able to do it if you if you do that and and we need this piece of the story so I I do kind of feel like there's value in it and and humanizing or not um I I, I do believe in it and I think if it had been done as parody, you know, Alice and, and even Phyllis and, and, and sort of had that kind of satirical agenda at at heart, you what you do, and I think it's similar to the way that people kind of laughed off Trump and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, wait, like, that's real. Mm-hmm. But we had made a mm-hmm. joke of it and dehumanized it. And um, yeah, mm-hmm. so I think that like, understanding someone is not supporting them, I guess, or supporting exactly. what they believe. Under- yeah. Exactly. Understanding it or trying to figure out the motive, you know, it's, it's, 
it's a way of looking back and figuring out how we got here today. How did mm-hmm. we get here? And, you know, you sort of, all of, all of the players are important to, um, to, you know, to pick up the proverbial rock of a person and look underneath is, is always going to be interesting to me. And it doesn't mean that uh, whomever is tasked with portraying that person supports the, exactly what you said, supports their, their way of thinking or how they went about trying to achieve their goals. But I think investigating the why of it is always going to be interesting to me. There's also some fun stuff in this episode that you get to do. Um, I am always curious with actors, uh, especially like you in this in this performance. You you just nail it. Like, how do you play kind of drunken on a pill? Like like so like what what is your sort of physical technique for that? Um, well, I can tell you, I did a lot of spinning. I sort of spin around a lot so that sure. uh, my my <laughs> my gait isn't quite my walking isn't really a strong suit um so i did do that a little bit just to kind of try to um you know and a lot of really really irritating actory things like a lot of shaking it out richard shake it out get really loose get all the tension out of your body a lot of you know vocal exercise get your tongue loose your neck loose your body loose just so you can you know be a little bit less um rigid and because usually when a person is uh inebriated or taken some kind of substance there they're they're like bodies a little more jelly and so all those normal things that one thinks about whether it's posture or just i don't know the way you're arranging your face you just don't think about it as much which is why there are so many wonderful pictures of people on the internet uh what are they are they called gifs or gifs i don't understand what they are but like people making these insane faces that they don't realize they're making when they're drunk and I, for one, am, am happy about all of it because I think those are really fun. <laughs> really, yeah. really, really enjoyable. Yeah. So you did some Terrence Malick twirling and then they called I did some action. Terrence Malick twirling and then they called yeah. action and I'd be like, hey, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I I also love the scene with Niecy Nash, uh, where you know you unwit- Alice unwittingly sings this you know Woody Guthrie socialist anthem, um, and you guys have a, a funny little exchange about that. Um, is it is it uh, satisfying that in this episode of kind of darker or actually I mean that's not dark but more profound realization that you got to do something light with a great comic actress like Nisi? Well, I mean, my 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 thing you should just know. Uh, Full disclosure is I'm obsessed with Nisi Nash and I was obsessed with getting on and I just think she's really an extraordinary actress. And, and in addition to being a comedic actress, she's just like an extraordinary actress. Full stop. I thought she was so wonderful and um, Ava DuVernay piece. I just thought it was just she just I think she's remarkable. And I have had a couple of opportunities at little social events to to basically uh, bow at her feet and tell her how much I love her. So we, we were having a really good time and we wished, we both wish we, we could do more together. And we talked about like, is there a buddy picture in our future? Like, could we, could we find some, like, what would it be? We were like, Oh, we should do something called jury duty. And like, we, we were just like, it was very late one night and we were just really trying to figure out what we could possibly f- uh, find to do together. And, you know, in all the rehearsing of the scene where I had to sing, you know, I have a real phobia of singing. It makes me very nervous and very uncomfortable. And during rehearsal, I was like doing it kind of light. And she's like, I know you're not going to do it like that. And I was like, what? And she's like, no, I know you're not going to do it like that. You're going to have to do some, you're going to, you're going to have to, you're going to do some Sarah Paulson thing, aren't you? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And now I'm now, of course, I was so nervous to disappoint me enough that whatever she thought I was going to do that 
because by the way, I hadn't, I had planned to do it like that. And then it was Nisi who said like, you're going to have to do more than that. <laughs> probably. <laughs> and since I haven't seen it, I don't know what take they use, but um, uh, if, if it's anything uh, remotely resembling anything good, it's because she, she was really not having my, my timorous uh, approach to the song. She was like, no, no, no. Mm-mm, mm-mm. <laughs> so so we'll yeah. add vocal coach to her already impressive resume. You can resume. add vocal coach to her impressive <laughs> resume. Exactly right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Well, I think we're just about out of time, but um, I really appreciate you talking. And I I, I, I think to close out, um, it's kind of a corny question. Um, and, and maybe we'll see more of this in, in the finale episode coming up. But in your mind, because Alice is a made-up character, um, do you – do you see like a, a good uh, a good future for her? I guess once the, the show sort of ends and her life imagined kind of continues on. I do, I do. I I think you know without giving too much away for for people who you know for what does happen in the in the final episode between Phyllis and Alice. You know, I think I think Alice had always been a person, and and I say as much in in um, in the episode that that we're talking about um, that you know Phyllis liking Alice, Phyllis wanting to be around Alice made Alice feel important. It made Alice feel um, smart. It made her feel special. It made her feel chosen. And I think post the Houston episode and into the finale and beyond what Alice learns is, is that she's got enough going on uh, to celebrate without Phyllis's um, um, knighting of, of her, you know, she, she, she is really, um, uh, a very special, kind, uh, sensitive soul who uh, really only wants the best for people and having any kind of um, living under Phyllis's shadow no longer serves and to have the courage to move away from that when for a long time, I think Phyllis uh, shining her light on Alice made Alice feel powerful. And, and eventually I think she no longer needs that, but but it's not to say that without Phyllis, she she could have arrived where she arrived. I don't think she could have. So so it's not it's it's not without value. Her relationship with Phyllis is not without value. But I I, I certainly think uh, I see uh, much expansion for Alice in the future, and when with the support of her husband, and still by being a very dedicated homemaker and a woman of great faith, um, without losing any of those those core values of, of hers. I think she, I think she does expand and I think things go very well for her. I really do. Well, good. And I think you in this episode really help her set, uh, help set her on that course. So um, yeah, well, I, I hope you. everyone else enjoyed it as much as I did. And Sarah, thank you for taking time during quarantine to uh, chat about this and um, <laughs> hopefully we can have you on to talk Linda Tripp at some point. <laughs> I would love it if we, if we ever get to shoot it. Yes, I would love it. I always love talking <sighs> to you. Richard. I really yeah. Do. yeah, you too. Um, stay safe. And thanks again. Yes, you too. You got it. Be well. All right, that is it for us this week. Richard, uh, until next week, where can people find you? At the Gay Lounge. I hear they still have food. So <laughs> uh, from there, which, you know, it's funny. Um, I go to like film festivals and I've been to a couple like conventions and as you have. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they, there's always like, oh, go to the Chase Sapphire Lounge or the blah, blah, blah. It's funny to think that, that some conception of that existed, you know, in 1977. Um, and it was funny that, uh, 
the 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 gay lounge at at the 77 women's conference looked a lot like one of the branded lounges at vidcon last summer (laughs) 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 with a kind of wooded like enchanted forest theme uh so you know nothing is new everything's everything's you know a repeat uh which i thought was kind of funny anyway joanna until the last episode where will you be um, well, I will still be trying to, uh, find my way back on the road from Houston without any kind of digital map to assist me. Right. I'll probably wind up in a cornfield somewhere. Hopefully a marathon will come by and show me the way home. Right. Go left. Right. <laughs> <laughs>